There are detective shows and adventure shows that come and go, but romance never disappears. Why does just a simple title like Love Story bring millions to the box office? What does it take to make a good romantic tale? Today we're going to take a look at Revelation 19, 1-10, a study my husband Dave has titled The Prepared Bride. All three of our sons are now married, and we enjoyed all the suspense and romance of their powerful love stories. We also got to experience some of the frantic moments of planning and pulling off the big events. We have had to give a lot of thought to the preparation it takes to get ready for a wedding. How can we get ready for the greatest wedding of all? Let's join Dave as he begins today's study, sharing about one wedding he did when the bride didn't come prepared. Dave? You know, probably in all the years that I've been pastoring, there's only one wedding I've ever come to that the bride wasn't prepared. In fact, almost all the weddings that I do, the attendants are working with the bride, you know, sometimes days in advance of her wedding. And certainly on the day of the wedding, she's preparing, she's really ready. But I remember there was one bride that came, and she came to the wedding a little bit late. She actually came without her wedding dress. She just kind of had her wedding dress kind of thrown over her shoulder, and she came running into the old church, and she had manure on her boots, and she had manure on her jeans, and she kind of ripped everything off and just was there, finally, you know, about 20 minutes late, but we got going. It was kind of like having a wedding at Billy Bob's or something like that. And it's the only bride I've ever known in all the wedding that I've done that really wasn't prepared, and she acted like it wasn't really that big a deal. Well, and sadly, it wasn't a big deal. Her husband found her in bed with another man, and that, that marriage ended in separation and brokenness and divorce because it really wasn't any big deal. You see, in the midst of every one of our hearts, we know that weddings are really big deals. And even in a society where sometimes we wonder about the endurance of the commitment, it's so important for us as the Lord's people to realize that weddings are really important. There are times when we we capture a glimpse of what the Lord wants to do forever and ever and ever. As you turn to Revelation chapter 19 this morning, we have all of heaven beginning to prepare for a gigantic wedding. You see, in order to have a really good romantic story, first of all, you obviously need to have two lovers. You need to have a bridegroom and a bride. But it's going to be a boring story if you don't have any animosity or any conflict or any challenge against the lovers. So if you really want to write a really good story, then you've got to have these two lovers, but then they need to be opposed. They need to have some enemies that are trying to separate them. And so in a good romantic story, you usually have a counter-suitor that's trying to pull the bride away from her true love. And and usually there's all kinds of conflict in in a good romantic story about usually the, the suitor that's trying to take the woman away from her true love is usually a bad person. He's a person that we know as we read the story just doesn't have his character the way it ought to be. And he'll pollute them and will destroy them and corrupt them. And so we're just sitting there going, no, no, to the bride, don't listen to that. That's a deceiver. That's a con otter. That person is going to be bad for you. 
Sometimes you'll even throw into a really exciting romantic story a threat even against the bride's life. And, and the enemies will try not only to, to seduce her away, but they might even try to destroy the lover's life and his bride's life. And that makes a really exciting story. In fact, if you write a novel like that, it'll make big bucks because it'll hold people's attention and they'll be riveted right up to the climactic moment. That's what we've been doing in the book of Revelation. We've been participating in a great romantic story. In fact, the whole story of the Bible is a great romantic story. It's about a great lover named God who wanted to have people who would be close to him that would live intimately with him, that would be his lover. And even though he was totally one in himself and totally complete in himself, his love exploded and the desire to reach out to all of us. And that's why we're here today. But there's a great enemy. You see, God chose for history not to be boring. He also chose to give us choices. And in order, as soon as you give human beings choices, it means that they can make a choice to walk away from you and it opens up the whole potentiality of evil. Now, you might not like the way history is going. You might have thought that you could do a better job, but the truth of the matter is that there's a lot bigger things going on than just our plans and what we might have in view for our lives. You see, the great lover of the universe... The great divine God is writing an incredibly romantic story. And what he does in the Old Testament, he describes himself as the husband of his people Israel. And he describes Israel as his lover. And the story of the Old Testament is that his legitimate bride keeps wandering away from him, keeps wandering away from him. In the New Testament, God sends his son to the world and God presents the son as another bridegroom. And the son has his bride, the church. And sadly, in both stories, the bride tends to wander away, whether it's Old Testament Israel or the New Testament church. The reality of our hearts is that we tend to wander and what the book of Revelation has been describing is that there's this tremendous conflict as we move into those seven years of tribulation where we really return back to the Old Testament story where God begins to deal with his Old Testament bride again. And he begins to use testing and he uses suffering to purify the Israelite people and, and thousands upon millions of Jews begin to respond to Jesus as the Messiah. That's what we've been studying. We've studied about the 144,000 witnesses who, who begin to go out and proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. But you as a New Testament church must not forget that God hasn't forgotten you. And in Revelation chapter 19, the, the passage is going to close just before Jesus comes back as this great conquering general on a white horse. First of all, it introduces the reality that heaven is now ready for a great big wedding. And it is the wedding of the Son of God with his bride, the church. Rather than just being an aside in the kingdom program of God, you are at a strategic place in the kingdom program of God. And what Revelation 19 does, it, it shows us that the bride has now prepared herself. She's gotten dressed. And we're now getting ready for the king to come to vanquish the last vestige of the animosity against him as he destroys the Antichrist right after the great economic system that opposed him crashes and burns and is destroyed. We look up into heaven and heaven is excited. 
Heaven is celebrating. And to understand the pulse beat, in order to understand what Revelation 19 is about, you just got to gotta think about one of the greatest times of celebration that you ever had. You know, maybe it was when you were coming through a semester of high school and you thought you were going to flunk all your courses and, you know, you were right on the edge of 72, 73 and you thought it was going to be the end and you weren't even going to make it into the next year or maybe you're a senior and you didn't even think you were going to graduate and then suddenly your teachers did a great reversal. They threw out a bunch of homework assignments. They gave you an opportunity to do a quick test and they made it so easy they almost gave you the answers before they gave you the test and you made a 99 and you're able to pull out your courses and you suddenly get the news, I'm going to graduate. Think about how you would feel. Think about how you would feel. Man, exuberant praise. This is awesome. That's the feeling we have as we open up to Revelation chapter 19. Turn there. Revelation chapter 19 begins with four hallelujahs. Now, in English, we use the word hallelujah. I'm like, I'm tempted as a little kid. Whenever I read the word hallelujah, I think of hallelujah, 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 praise you. I'm always thinking of standing up and sitting down. Anybody think of that? You are raised in that same tradition? It's easy when you're raised a little kid from time immemorial, like that's the way we use the hallelujah. It's really easy just to be thinking about, you know, am I going to be able to stand up and sit down quick enough and at the right time? And I forget the wonder and the majesty of what hallelujah really means. You see, if I was speaking to you as Old Testament Israelites, if I mentioned the word hallelujah, it would be an awesome phrase to you. It would be an awesome exclamation to you. It would be the phrase, hallelujah, would be the phrase that expressed the passion of your heart. Because you would be saying hallel in Hebrew means praise. Express the greatness express the wonder, express that awesome thrill, express the awesome pleasure that I find. And then the word Yah at the end, hallelujah, is a shortened form of Yahweh. And Yahweh, remember, we've taught you over and over again, is the personal God of Israel that's there for them. And so in the Psalms, as you are going up as an Israelite, as you are going up to worship in the temple during the three times a year that you would journey from your town and go down to Jerusalem, you would, with all your parents and with all the kids, with, with thousands of other Israelites, walking along the trails, walking through the mountains, heading up to Jerusalem, you would sing the Hallel Psalms, Hallelujah Psalms. And you would begin singing Psalm 113 and following. And you would sing these great praises to the Lord. And over and over again in these psalms, they would say, hallelujah. Now, what were the Old Testament Israelites singing praise to Yahweh about? They were singing praise basically because God defeated their enemies. He defeated Pharaoh and he set them free and they were born as a nation. In Revelation 19, the Lord God lays out for us what is the basis by which we praise Yahweh. Why do we get so excited about him? Why do we just get exuberant about him and and express his greatness and his wonder? It's because he gave his son to die for us. It's because we've been delivered not from some little earthly pharaoh, but we've been delivered from the evil one. We've been delivered from Satan. And what Revelation has just described is Revelation described that Satan had generated this gigantic, materialistic, secular economic system Satan did the best job he ever could do in generating like a false kingdom, a false city, 
A city that's kind of like a movie set where it looks incredible on the outside, but when you walk in, it's all just pretend. It's all just empty. The city has now been destroyed. It's been burned to the ground. And what we begin in Revelation 19 is that all of heaven is looking at the destruction of the city, and let's see how they react. Look at Revelation 19, verse 1. After this, that's after what I just told you, after the destruction of the materialistic system that we talked about in Revelation 18, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. When you get to heaven, it's not going to be some boring place where you're tempted to fall asleep. Heaven is not going to be like your Sunday afternoon nap. You know, I think of some of you, you sit in your lazy boy and you start watching the Cowboys, you start watching the Rangers, and, and you're soothed into oblivion. You go out like light. And a lot of you have the idea that, you know, that's what it's going to be like in heaven. You're going to have your eternal lazy boy, your feet up, and you're going to eternally snooze. And that's just not the case. Because what children would ever want to go to heaven if you're going to have to sleep all the time? I mean, maybe the older ones would want to do that. We might want to do that, but the younger ones would want to do that. When we go to heaven, it's going to be more wonderful and more exciting and more filled with incredible experiences. In fact, there's no experience on earth that you could ever have that will compare with the excitement and the wonder that you're going to see when you get to be with the Lord Jesus in heaven. And John says, after the destruction of Jerusalem, there is this tremendous shout. It's like the roar of a great multitude. It's like being in a stadium with thousands upon thousands of people. Only this isn't some little mediocre thing like Texas Stadium where you only can get about 50,000 people in it. This is hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people. It makes the million man march or the million woman march or whatever million march you might want to have, it makes that kind of crowd look nothing. This is all the thousands upon thousands of angels. This is all the thousands upon thousands of of those that have trusted in God down through the ages. That's what's going on. And look what they're excited about. It says they are shouting hallelujah. Why are they shouting hallelujah? Because salvation, glory, and power belongs to God. For true and just are his judgments, and he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. The very first thing that heaven shouts praise about is because God has the power to win the victory over the materialistic secular system. One of the most important things that you need to decide in your life is where are you going to put your faith? Who you think is going to win? In other words, if you think that Secular America is going to win? If you think that money is going to win? If you think that power and getting really far ahead in business and just making that the ultimate goal of your life, if you think that's going to win, put your trust in it. Rest in it. Build your life upon it. You see, every one of you have to make a decision. What these writers are telling us here is they're saying that's a false god. If you believe that salvation, if you think victory comes by getting a really good job, If you think that the power really lies, the power really lies in what secular people do. If you think that the glory, if you think the one that really should be adored and and put up as the center of my life, the person I should look up and admire, if you think some powerful business person is the person you should go ahead and put up there, go ahead. Some of you that are in computers say, man, I want to be like Bill Gates. Man, I want to be able to come up with an entrepreneurial idea. And I want to make $60 billion or $90 billion. And, and I want to be the person that can go before Congress. And who cares whether you lose, give or take, $40 billion. It doesn't make any difference. If you want to trust in that, go ahead. That's what babbling is. 
battling that whole belief that just having lots of money, having big offices, having hundreds of thousands of people that work for you, being able to fly that fancy Learjet and all that stuff, that's going to give you meaning in life. That's what Babylon is. And I want you to realize that the book of Revelation has pictured that seduction just the way a, a prostitute would come on to a man, just the way a man would be tempted on a business trip by a beautiful high-class prostitute and, and would be tempted to, to go against the vows of his marriage. The book of Revelation is saying that that's the way materialism comes on to us. But heaven is rejoicing because now she's been exposed. Now she has been judged. As your pastor teacher, I plead with you to listen to me because it doesn't make any difference. You could be bored. You could be in another planet in your thinking. You might not listen at all to what I say. You might disagree. That doesn't make any difference at all. What I want you to know, the objective reality and truth of the universe is that one day, the God that you sang praise to, the Jesus that you love, the one that's got pierced for us on Calvary, the one who rose again, it doesn't make any difference what you think you don't make reality, he does. And what the book of Revelation is telling you, and I want you to get this in the core of your being, it says when all is said and done, salvation, the victory, is going to be God's. It says he's going to be the one that all the lights go on him. He's going to be the one that gets all the honor, that gets all the strength. He's the one who really has the power. The challenge of our life as a group of followers of Jesus is to let that reality sink into our soul and to believe it. Because every one of you worship. Every one of you believes someone really has the authority. Someone really has the power. There's someone that you're giving power over your life. There's someone that you give glory to. We need to just pray. Because only the Holy Spirit can cause us to understand that this is the truth. I talk to a, some parents of teenagers, and they wonder, what's wrong with my kid? You know, they're, they're, they're just not interested in the Bible anymore. They don't want to pray anymore. They don't, they don't ever read the Bible, except when I force them to do it, maybe after a meal or something like that. They're just totally disengaged with spiritual things. There's some of you, some of you husbands that are here, and you say, my wife never wants to come. My wife never wants to be here with me. It's always, you know, I'm focused on this, but my wife isn't. What can I do? There's some of you that are older that have been praying for your kids. You've raised them to really follow the Lord, but they went out away into their careers. They went out into businesses. They established their family. And man, being in a place like this is the farthest thing from their lives. You say, what can we do? One of the things that we need to do is we need to pray. We need to pray. That's where things happen. You say, what do I do when my heart's broken because my, my child just doesn't have a heart commitment for the Lord or my husband doesn't have a heart commitment for the Lord. My husband doesn't realize that salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Someone that I really love just doesn't believe that. What can I do to change that? Pray. Really talk to the Lord. The Lord's the only one that can work in the heart. The Lord's the only one that can take my empty words and make them penetrate your soul. Maybe get you to wake up to reality. Maybe to get you to not buy this whore, to buy this seductive, immoral, seductive system that wants to just suck the life out of you. God wants to work in our midst. That's why he gave us the book of Revelation. He's already told you. He's already told me the way it's going to end up. He says, listen, in the end, I win. In the end, I vanquish all of my enemies. 
what heaven realizes, you see, they're excited because they realize that the enemy, this great secular materialistic system, has now been destroyed. And what they're rejoicing, if you look at verse 2, they're rejoicing because God is true. God is true and he's just. Like some of you are really troubled. You say, you know, I don't really like the way things are going right now. And, you know, I get angry at God because he seems to allow things to happen. But I don't see how a good guy could do it. As you talk to unbelieving people, especially as you go out into the university, one of the big things you'll hear constantly, there couldn't possibly be a good, holy, righteous, loving God out there because look how messed up everything is. What Revelation is telling us is that God is the only one that promises that the mess up will get cleaned up. It's crazy to reject the only one in all the universe who really does have their act together, who really does do what is just, who really does what is right. It just doesn't make any rational sense to get mad at the only one who really has his act together. And what Revelation's already told us is that all the craziness... All the abuse, all the destruction of the innocent, all the murderous violence, all the horrible things that evil has produced, he's saying in the end, he's going to justly deal with that because he's true. And that means that he conforms reality. What I'm teaching you here, what heaven's all excited about, is they've finally seen, you know, earlier in the book they're saying, Lord, how long are you going to let Antichrist strut his stuff? How long are you going to let the false prophet keep telling people lies? How long are you going to get let the, this big, gigantic economic empire babble in? How long are you going to let them keep casting their spells upon people? They also ask, uh, how long are you going to let us not be avenged? Because this big secular system, according to verse 2, they were the ones that were, were killing the servants of God. And the, earlier in the book, the servants of God are saying, God, how much longer will you let us just have our lives taken? Why don't you do something? And what the book of Revelation says, God in heaven says, I'm going to do something. And that's what you've got to trust. He's saying the true and just of his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. See, God says, you might wonder, like, I don't want to serve the Lord. Why should I serve the Lord? Man, someone goes out as a missionary and they, they go to serve like in Egypt. Or we think of a missionary that went to serve in India. And they pour out their life. You know, they're sharing the gospel with people. I think of a dear missionary that we prayed for his family earlier today with his sons and with his wife, ministering in India. And one night, while he, was, he and his sons were sleeping in the car, some terrorists firebombed his car and just burned him up and his sons. His wife is now continuing minister in India by herself, continuing the mission. And we asked the question, like, why should I ever decide to represent God in India? Why should I ever risk my life? You know, why should I go into dangerous situations? Because look what happens. That's what the saints in the tribulation period are asking through this book. And Revelation 19, they are so filled with praise because finally God says, now you're going to see me in action. It's like an incredible Rocky film. In the last round of the fight, man, the monster's still beating him up. And then suddenly you have the tables turned. That's what makes a great story. That's why when you finish a film like that, you feel like sitting up and shouting. Well, this isn't some Hollywood pretend story. This is the real thing. And what we're actually seeing is that God, like on the cross, it looked like God just let Satan whoop him. It looked on the cross like God just let evil win the day. But the incredible twist in the story is that God used that cross to defeat Satan's 
claim against God that he couldn't justly forgive sins because God on the cross paid the penalty of sin totally in full. What Revelation 19 is celebrating is now the outcome of that tremendous victory that was won on Calvary is now coming to completion as God begins to shake the world and begins to execute his justice. In verse 3, we have a second hallelujah. We have a second group. It says, and again they shout out, the same group. This thunderous shout goes forth again. Hallelujah. For the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. For the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. What it means to reject the strength of God, what it means to reject the glory of God, what it means to reject the truth of God, means that you're going to be on the wrong side forever and ever and ever. Babylon strutted itself against God. There came a time when God says, that's it. And we saw when we studied those chapters, God gave an opportunity for people to come out of that secular city. God gave an opportunity for people to respond to his son over and over again. But I want you to know, and this is one of the most solemn realities in the universe. You know, you can harden your heart, and a system can harden its heart to the call of God. And suddenly that call will stop. For example, if you're sitting here and you can still hear a call of God saying, don't live for the secular system. Don't buy the party scene. Don't just live for the way you look upon life. Don't believe in that big business is going to be the answer for everything. Worship God. Don't worship Babylon. If you can hear that voice, that means the Holy Spirit is still speaking to your heart and touching your heart and trying to get you to respond. And I want to just encourage you, and I'm saying this to myself too, it's so important to respond to that voice. To say, Lord, give me strength. Work in my life. Jesus, you live inside of me. Help me to be able to live that out. If you've never received Jesus, you'll hear a voice that's saying, let Jesus inside of you. Let him come into your life. Let him make you a new person. Don't resist that voice. Because that voice won't always speak a word of salvation. You see, now we live in a time where now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. But what we're reading here in the book of Revelation is there came a time when God said, that's enough of Babylon, and he destroys the city. And those that joined with that secular city who chose to be the enemies of God are going to be cast away from the presence of God. They didn't want God. They cursed him. They rejected him. You say, who's going to be in hell? All those that didn't want God in their life day by day. All those that, that didn't praise God. All those that cursed him. All those that just lived for wickedness and enjoyed it. God gives people exactly what they want at the core of their being. And you're going to decide. In fact, the book of Revelation has verses like, those who are going to do wickedness will continue to do it. And those who love righteousness will continue to do righteousness. Does that mean that God just locks you in fatalistically? No. doesn't mean that at all. But it means you decide in the core of your being what you worship, what you give thanks to, what you believe in, what your life's going to consist of. If you choose to live for Babylon... If you choose to live just in the parameters of this life, then the book of Revelation says there's going to come a day when all of your materialism is burned up. And it says that all of heaven is going to rejoice at that time because this great system that was such a lie, that was such a deceiver, that was so destructive against God's people because it became very hostile and murdering against those who declared the truth. The book of Revelation says there's going to come a day when all of heaven rejoices because that city and those that joined that city are destroyed forever and ever and ever. 
You're going to hear a ton of preachers in our culture today that will just tell you that God loves you and you can do whatever you want to do and you don't have to really choose to live your life for him. Just do whatever you want to do and live your life the way you want to. And I promise you that God will be a great Santa Claus in the end. You're going to hear all kinds of people that tell you that, but it's a lie. One of the major ideas that the book of Revelation tells us is that God is compassionate, he's loving, but he's also just. And when someone struts themselves across the pages of history and says, I'm bigger than God, and I'm going to run my life the way I want to live it, and I'm going to live for things, and I'm not going to live for God, and God calls to them repeatedly and seeks to get them returned, there comes a time where God brings judgment to bear. The Bible, from Genesis through Revelation, talks about a God who's infinitely merciful, but he's also infinitely just. And heaven rejoices because finally God executed the just penalty that the murderers of his people deserved. You're going to have to decide. You're going to have to decide whether you're going to be a follower of Jesus and join with him and honor him and praise him and be willing to take abuse for him, teasing for him, maybe even give your life for him, you'll have to decide whether you're going to do that or whether you're going to join the crowd who instigates that abuse against him. That's what Revelation's teaching. And so heaven here is rejoicing because finally their great enemy has been destroyed. The enemy that was trying to seduce the true lover away from their true love has finally been defeated. We have a third hallelujah. The 24 elders and the four living creatures. We met them in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Some of you remember that. The 24 elders represent a kind of an elite ruling group of angels possibly uh, that are around the throne of God, kind of like an inner circle of the angelic core. The living creatures represent four of the archangels that represent all of creation. Remember, these are the weird creatures that are pictured in Ezekiel and also in Revelation 4 and 5. They're the elite four uh, cherubim that are the closest to the Lord, representing God's rule over all creation. But these heavenly beings fall down and they worship God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen, you can count on it, hallelujah. I want you to see the way worship works. I want you to see the way heavenly worship works. You see, the first group, this great multitude, they shout with a great shout of praise. And they praise God that he vanquished Babylon. They praise God that the materialistic system has been torn down. They praise God that God has now executed his justice upon the earth. Then we have a smaller group that responds to them and says, Amen, hallelujah. In heaven, you're going to be very involved in your worship. Because right here it says they fall flat on their face. Have you ever been in a meeting where the awesome presence of God becomes so powerful that everyone just flats out on their face? Not contrived, not manipulated, but just the Spirit of God becomes so powerful and holy and present that people are just moved to get down on their face and pray to the Lord. What I want to encourage you to do as a pastor is don't be afraid of that. And I would encourage you in your own life, in your own prayer time with the Lord, sometimes it's really good to anticipate this heavenly adoration and just get down on your face in your room by yourself and worship the Lord. You see, as Americans, I'm just sharing with you from my own heart. As Americans, we are prideful. In other words, I'm free, and I don't bow before any man. In other words, I'm not English. I don't have a king. I elect my presidents. I trash my presidents. I speak against my presidents, and I bless my presidents. I'm an American. That's what the Revolutionary War was about. And that's good. 
That's good when it's applied to the government, when it's applied to a free democracy, and it's a great thing. But it's not good, it's not good for me when I come before the king of the universe. And I want you to pray that I'll grow in this. You see, I need to learn to respond to the greatness of God, the grandeur of God, the awesome king that God is. That's what heaven's doing here. You see, they fall on their faces because they're just bowled over by the incredible strength and the incredible power of God. And what I want you to do is that as you begin to enter into that and you begin to believe it, what I want to encourage you to do is to think about it in your own heart. Is that what I really believe about God? Is that what I'm committed to? Is that what I trust about God? And then just let yourself respond to that. Let yourself respond to what you really believe in your heart about God. And praise and worship in heaven here, the, 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 the four living creatures and the elders are not looking around and wondering, well, I wonder what the rest of the angels are going to think. And I wonder whether they're going to think I'm some kind of a weird duck or something. That's not what they're thinking at all. You see, they're focused on the Lamb of God. They're focused on the King of Kings. They're focused on the Father. And they're responding to the Holy Spirit. And that's what we need to learn to grow. And one of the greatest lessons that Revelation wants to teach us is to begin to capture a little glimpse of what it will mean to worship when we get to heaven. It's then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God. Here's another hallelujah, the fourth hallelujah. Praise our God, all you as servants, and all you who reverence him, both small and the great. Then I heard what sounded like the great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters. He, just like John, just, he's trying to just grab, what can I use to help people understand the awesome strength and power and wonder and magnitude of this prey that's being offered in heaven? And so he remembers, boy, I remember when I was down at the Mediterranean and a storm was coming up and I could hear the roar of those breakers. It's kind of like that. The roar of the rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder. He said, maybe that'll do it. That'll do it. Man, you think of big thunderclaps going out. That's what it's going to be like in this exuberant heavenly praise. And we have another hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Why? Because the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Say, what in the world is going on? You see, so far, the heavenly praise has been praise God for what he did against the secular kingdom. Praise God that he destroyed this materialistic system. But did you hear what heaven just got really excited about in the section I just read to you? I just read to you that now all of heaven gets excited and the roar of many waters and thunderclaps begin to just resound through all of heaven. You know why? Because of you. Did you ever, do you understand that? It's because of you and because of me. He's saying, they're saying, now the big event of heaven is getting ready to happen. The church of Jesus Christ, human beings that have washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb, human beings that have believed in the resurrected Christ, human beings that responded to what Jesus said when he said to Thomas, Thomas, you believe because you put your fingers in my palm. Thomas, you believe because you're able to thrust your hand into my side. You believe because you saw. But Jesus, after he was resurrected, said to Thomas, Thomas, I want you to know that there's going to be millions, there's going to be thousands of other people that never see me 
that never get to objectively look upon me as a human being in the flesh. They're not going to be like you along the Sea of Galilee, but I'm going to do something even more wonderful than you can imagine. I'm going to come in the presence of my spirit. And down through the ages, there's going to be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other people who, though they never see me, they will love me. And they will build their lives upon me and they'll build their families upon me and they'll seek to raise kids. They're going to get all excited in the family of faith and try to come up with new Sunday school programs and help a wanted to finish strong and, and they're going to just keep trying to reach out in neighborhood Bible studies and VBS during the summer and they're going to join with churches all over the metroplex and all over the world. They're going to even send some of their most gifted people way into different distant places in the world because they love me. Your bridegroom in heaven is excited about that today. He's excited about you. That's why I don't want you to, to live for some Hollywood video or some career or, and make that your ultimate God. Because Jesus is so much greater. All these things that Satan tried to seduce you and get your heart to pound for that. You're going to find as life goes by that slowly but surely all those things that are part of the secular system that you believe in, that you worship, they slowly but surely run out of gas. But there is one, there is one who gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. Sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. And that's your bridegroom. And what all of heaven is rejoicing in, they're rejoicing because the bride has now made herself ready and her readiness is the righteous acts that she has done. Now, is this saying that what I need to do, well, what I need to do is I need to get myself dressed. So I need to go out and I need to work really hard to please Jesus. That's not what it's saying. This little passage that the fine linen are the righteous deeds, the righteous acts of the bride. The word that's used for righteous act is a word, first of all, that means that God has avenged her enemies it means that God has affirmed that this woman, who everyone laughed at, thought she made the wrong choice, thought she had the wrong lover, her lover had disappeared, and everyone said he would never show up again. Finally, he's come back, and she's dressed for her wedding. And man, her dress is saying, man, I made the right choice. I'm dressed in heavenly garments because my lover was the real lover. And the one that I waited for was worth waiting for. And God has now avenged my enemies. And now he's ready to affirm his love for me. That's one of the things that this word, the righteous deeds of the bride represent. Another thing that the scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 5. It tells all of us as husbands that Jesus is washing and cleansing and, and preparing our wives for the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're just servants underneath him to help in that preparation. And God's also doing that preparation in our own life. You see, the great paradox of the Christian life is that you can't dress yourself. You need to receive this new personality, this new character, this new life as a gift from the Lord. But then as that new gift comes into your life, as you respond and believe in that new life, then it does create objective good things in your life. Jesus really does change life. It's not just pretend. It's for real. And that's what Revelation has a marvelous balance of. It pictures we receive the garments. We receive the garments as gifts from our bridegroom. But because we receive these garments which represent the new character of Christ, the new life of Christ, Paul called it the new man, as that really is expressed in our life, it does generate objectively good things, powerful actions for the glory of God. 
So never think of yourself like this week as you go out. You know, I don't want you to think, of, man, God's way up there and Jesus is way up there and I'm trying hard to try to do some of these good things because I want to be clean and I want to have white garments. Some of you have been preached like that for years and it doesn't work. You feel isolated from Jesus. You constantly feel like you're letting Jesus down. You feel guilty and then you just chuck the whole thing because it doesn't work. What I want you to realize is, yeah, Jesus is in the heavens, but Paul declares that Christ is in you your hope of glory. And he gives you your wedding garment. You see, in the Old Testament, God was pictured as giving wedding garments as a gift to his bride. Like in Hosea chapter 2, God says, I'm going to give you the gift of my faithfulness. I'm going to give you the gift of my righteousness. I'm going to give you the gift of my dependability. I'm going to give you the gift of my compassion. And he gives his bride what she never could be under the old covenant. Try and try and try to obey the Ten Commandments. In Hosea 2, the Lord says, I'm going to give you a new covenant. And I'm going to give you your wedding garment. It's going to be the gift of myself living inside of you. Ezekiel calls it a new heart. And Paul expanded on that under the incredible promises of Jesus and says that every one of you that received Jesus in your heart have received that precious gift. We need to decide what praise festival am I going to join in? What clothes am I going to wear? And I want to challenge you. Jesus is the Almighty One. He's the strong one. He's the true one. He's the one of justice. He's the one that eventually is going to win. And what he says is that you, when you respond to the Son of God and you believe in him, and he says you are the one that all of heaven is excited about. All of heaven's excited about because now the bride has made herself ready. And I want you to realize one day, and for all of you guys, don't worry about it. The Lord's not going to change you as some weird feminine being when you get to heaven. You don't need to worry about that. It's just a symbol of intimacy. God uses all kinds of symbols, like you're a son, like you're a little sheep, like you're a bride. And I would also say to you ladies, you can enter in to all the excitement. You know what it's like to anticipate being a bride. And you can really respond to that. And your heavenly daddy is telling every one of you ladies, you see, I'm really focused on you. I'll use illustrations that will really speak to you and maybe it'll even speak more powerfully than you. This illustration will speak maybe more powerfully to you than even to your husband. And I want you to know that I'm doing that because I love you. And he's saying to every one of us, he wants us, don't believe in this whore. Don't believe in this secular system. Instead, give all your praise, all your thanksgiving to the true bridegroom who will satisfy you forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, as we've looked at these thunderous hallels in the book of Revelation, we'd ask you, Lord, that you would set us free from the depths of our being to exalt you and to praise you. Lord, help us not just to read Revelation and then forget about it but help us to meditate on it, to think about it over and over again, to allow your spirit to cause us to understand that, that this is the truth, that there's going to come a day, absolutely for sure, we can count on it, when all the materialistic secular kingdoms will come crashing down, they'll all be burned up, and those that opposed you and those that martyred your saints and those that persecuted your cause are going to be dealt with by one who has the power to deal with them. Help us to get great comfort in that. I pray that that would give us the rest as, as we live in this not yet time before we see that perfect expression of your will done on planet earth. I also ask you, Lord, that you would help us to capture this vision of how special the bride is to your son. And I'd ask you, Lord, that the pure, holy devotion of our true love for Jesus 
I pray that that would be the thing that protect us from false loves and the seduction of this Babylonian system that we've been talking about. Lord, we're not going to ever overcome the pull of Babylon by rules and regulations, by monastery approaches trying to lock people up and protect them that way. Lord, we need to have our affections changed. We need to have the love of our heart tuned into your true love. And that's what Revelation 19 is about. And I would pray that your Holy Spirit would cause us to genuinely join this heavenly praise and pronounce our hallelujahs, our praise Yahweh's, all during the week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.